We have come as far as verse 32 in Mark 13, where Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who left his house, gave authority to his servants and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. So at the end of this uh, Olivet Discourse by Jesus, uh, he's given us signs of his coming, things that would be happening. And then he's told us a particular sign that should get our attention. That's the, the budding of this fig tree. Gives us a particular time. He starts talking about the timing of this. And uh, Israel be, becoming uh, a nation again, being in their land. And then he still continues to speak of the timing here. And in this situation, he says, nobody knows the day or the hour. He gives this warning concerning his, com- his coming. He emphasizes readiness. His servants are not to be caught unawares at his coming. This is an oft-repeated exhortation. A couple of examples. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4-9. through nine. Paul tells them, You, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is coming upon the world. And Paul says, you're sons of the day. This shouldn't overtake you as a thief. And God didn't appoint us to that wrath. So we want to be watching, waiting, expectant. Romans 13, uh, starting in verse 8, for some context, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now we see um, many times when the scriptures speak of the last days, they also speak of the importance of love for one another, that the love is supreme among, in our relationships. And then in verse 11, he says, Do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. If you happen to be slumbering, it's time to wake up. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Speaking of wakefulness that we ought to have. So the day and the hour is not known. 
and is not knowable by man. Distinct, this is distinct from Jesus' physical return to the earth. The time of which is known. That is, he told us following the great tribulation. And he's given us the markers and the signs of that tribulation. We saw in Daniel 9.27 that this final seven years of the time that was determined upon Israel and Jerusalem, uh, the seven-year covenant that will be made and it will be broken in the midst of that seven years. We saw in this uh, chapter, Mark 13.14, Jesus speaking of the abomination of desolation. Three and a half years, the midpoint of the tribulation period. And so, uh, there's only one abomination of desolation to look for. Right? We won't. I don't believe we'll be seeing it, but it's a, it's a one-time occurrence in the last days. All these other signs that Jesus gave were multiples. You know, they were they were plurals, famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and so forth. Everything's plural. But once you get to this point, the abomination of desolation. That's you can count down. That's a one-off event. You know that in three and a half years, Jesus will be coming. You know, uh, multiple earthquakes. This past week, we had a flurry of earthquakes. I don't know if you had Charlotte saw some reports of them. They're in different places around the world. They're, they weren't all in, in one spot. You know, I think that's probably the correct term, a flurry of earthquakes. You know, you got a, you got a flock of sheep and a herd of goats and a flurry of earthquakes. You know. If it's not, it is now. (laughs) So the fig tree budding begins the time frame of his coming. The midpoint of the seven years, or three and a half years later, Jesus comes. If the day and the hour are unknown, then this must be speaking of the rapture of the church. Jesus is backing up here in time in order to exhort his followers to be awake, alert, anticipating his coming for them. The timing of the rapture is a surprise. It is unexpected. It is imminent. That is, it could happen at any moment. In Luke chapter 12, 39 and 40, Jesus tells them, Know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, uh, it gives an indication that a lot of people will be unaware. They won't be paying attention, even believers, at this point when the rapture takes place. And so we're exhorted to, to watch, to be ready. We're exhorted to be watching, expectant for His coming, to complete our redemption, the glorification of our bodies. Now, it's true that unbelievers will be taken unaware at the physical return of Jesus to the earth. Now, they'll be taken unawares at the rapture and the second coming, uh, they're unaware because they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe that God will do either good or bad. You know, we read this in Zephaniah 1.12 on Thursday nights. He says, it, it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and will punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. This is the attitude of the world, uh, if they even believe that there is a God. But believers are, believers are not to be taken unaware at the Lord's coming. If we look at First Thess- Thessalonians 5 again, starting in verse 1, he tells them, 
Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, so we've got a difference between you and they, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape that tribulation period beginning. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that that day should overtake you as a thief. Now, we should be watching. We should be ready. This is before the tribulation he's speaking of there. So how much more so when the time frame is clearly set forth in Daniel and in Revelation? Those who come to believe during the tribulation, we know that there will be many. Uh, Revelation 7, verse 9, after these 144,000 Jewish evangelists are sealed by God, uh, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. In verse 9, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And in verse 13, he says, One of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said, You tell me. And he said, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This great multitude saved during that seven-year tribulation period. So we know there are going to be many who come out of that. Um, And we can know the time of the second coming from these detailed prophecies that are given to us. We can't know the time of the rapture not the day or the hour. We should know the general time frame, like today, could be today. You know, he says here, uh, no man knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Uh, Many are troubled by this saying, because Jesus says not even the Son knows. They say, well, how can Jesus be God and not know? Is Jesus God? And it's affirmed continually in Scripture. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In verse 14, we find the identification of this one who became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. and, you know, we see the Father and the Son there. Um, in Second Corinthians 13, we see also the Spirit, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. They're all co-equal in that blessing of the church. Second Corinthians 13, 14. In John 8, 58, uh, as Jesus is disputing with the Jews, he makes this statement, Uh, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to stone him after this. And I said, well, you're not even 50 years old. How could you say that? Uh, He says that before Abraham was, I am. And they realized what he was saying. This This I am is the name that God gave to Moses in Exodus 13 when Moses said, who shall I say is sending me? He says, tell him, I am that I am is sending you. And when that's translated into Greek and Septuagint, it's this phrase, I am. Ego, I'm. 
So Jesus identifies himself as God. In John 10.30, he says, I and my Father are one. No creature could say that. And we could go on for a long while seeing that the Scriptures teach that Jesus is God come in the flesh and that he claimed to be such. So why would Jesus not know? Well, he was fully human. In Philippians chapter 2, Starting in verse 3, Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others, setting the stage for the statement, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's, he's our example of this. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we find God coming as man and then going to the cross to pay for our sins. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, that and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he becomes a man. He made himself of no reputation. This is the Greek, kanao, uh, that, that word no reputation, and it means to empty yourself. Now many have uh, taken from that and they say, well, Jesus emptied himself of his deity. Um, It's impossible that Jesus could lay aside his godhood. What he emptied himself of was his reputation, his rights to claim that equality, coming as a bondservant and submitting himself perfectly to the Father. He could never cease to be God. That's who he is by nature. But he did take the form of a bondservant. He was the servant to the Father. And he did and said only those things that the Father showed him and commanded. And when Paul quotes this and he says that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess, he's quoting Isaiah 45:23, where this is God speaking, Yahweh. He says, I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. So Paul's saying, well, this God who's proclaiming this, this is the one who came, who was uh, incarnated. So he comes then as uh, a bondservant, the servant of the Father, Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Uh, this is God speaking. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. This is speaking of the one to come, Jesus. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. And we see this passage applied to Jesus again in the New Testament. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Boy, that's good news. 
He's not going to stop or give up. And the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Now the Father speaking to the Son. (laughs) And will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. So the Father uh, appointing the Son. John 17:5. Jesus prays and says, And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And God has just said, I won't give my glory to another. They share the glory because they share uh, deity. It is possible that in his humanity, his knowledge was limited to what the Father showed him. And if that is so, then uh, the Father showed him a lot. (laughs) Probably everything except what he mentions here. In John 3.34, it is said of him, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Jesus was... Well, it says, uh, all, in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead in his body. So you can't get any more filled with the Spirit than he was. So is this lack of knowledge a problem for Jesus' deity? No, it's not. He came in the flesh, humbled himself as a servant before the Father, and received from the Father. But, you know, there's disagreement among believers. Some will say everything Jesus did, he did uh, as God. And then there are others that would tend to be more in this uh, mindset that what he did, he did by the power of the Spirit in obedience to the Father as a man, an example of a man. And he didn't cease to be God. I'm not saying he was ever any less than God. But uh, we see his knowledge the miracles that he did and so forth. He could have done all those as certainly as God. He is God by nature. But I think as an example, he did those for uh, us. He often called himself Son of Man. That was his favorite term for himself. Uh, You know, another example, we know he wasn't omnipresent when he took on his flesh. He was in the body. So there's another way in which he was limited. It doesn't didn't mean that he ceased being God. Uh, doesn't mean he wasn't God come in the flesh. There's also an illusion here as he talks about um, no man knows the hour of the day, nor the son, only the father. There's an allusion here to the typical of marriage arrangement in the Jewish community of the day. Uh, first, the marriage covenant would be made and the parents would make, uh, the parents of the groom would make a covenant with the parents of the bride. And there would be, a bride price paid, and Jesus paid a price certainly for his bride. Uh, then they would have a cup of wine to seem, seal the deal, and the groom would go away back to his father's house, and he would prepare a place in his father's house or on his property. We see this in uh, Jesus speaking about this in John 14, verses 1 through 3, where he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Uh, I'm going to come back for you. He says, you know, I'm going to pay the price and I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you. If you believe in God, believe also in me. That's another statement requiring him to be God. 
In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so the groom goes away. He prepares a place in his Father's house. And uh, in this day, the, the Father would be the one to give the word. Because uh, we know young men who are about to be married, they're going to run home and put up a a lean-to and say, okay, we're ready. (laughs) Uh, But only the father could say, okay, this is, you know, a suitable place for your bride. And so, you know, we see this this allusion to this kind of uh, situation. So the father has to approve the dwelling place, and only the father knows when that place is ready. And then he gives the word to the son. I'm sure Jesus has full knowledge of all things now. His limitation was only in regard to uh, his earthly life. So he says in verse 33, Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Uh, We're exhorted to watchfulness with prayer. Uh, In Mark chapter 14, which we'll be coming to, uh, Jesus goes into the garden with uh, Peter, James, and John. In verse 34, he says to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Here's this servant, this bondservant doing the Father's will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so our flesh, we have to battle our flesh. Because the spirit wants to do what the Lord has said we should do. Ephesians 6.18, Paul exhorts them to be praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Praying, always praying with all prayer. That's, that's praying. I think neglect of prayer is probably the greatest weakness in the church today. You know, it's probably the area in, in my life in which I struggle the most. I'm greatly appreciated, appreciative of the women's prayer time before the Sunday services. I think that's a blessing and uh, I think God's blessing is upon that and upon the service because of that. Prayer is possibly the greatest resource of the church. It's certainly one of the greatest at the least because in prayer we can speak directly to God, the creator and ruler of the universe. He encourages us to come to him with our requests, our desires, our pleadings, our supplications, etc. In uh, Philippians chapter 4, In verse 6, Paul exhorts them. He says, be anxious for nothing. There's a a command for us to seek to obey. Be anxious. These are anxious times. These are times that, what's it saying? That try men's souls. But he, he exhorts us, be anxious for nothing. What's the alternative? In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. This is God opening the door. This is what He desires. And, you know, we don't even have to know 
exactly what we should pray for. In Romans it says the Spirit intercedes for us in our weaknesses uh, and He will help us in our prayer. But here it says, let your request be made known to God. You know, leave it with God. Let Him decide. You don't have to know exactly what His will is. You know, it's good to seek Him for His will and to pray according to His will, but sometimes we don't know. And sometimes we just, you know, we have a request. We want God to do something. Let your request be made known to God uh, with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So there's this promise. If you are anxious, if, you're, if you don't have peace in your heart, in your life, there's a remedy here in taking everything to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving and then resting in that. And he, he promises us the peace of God. It surpasses understanding. There are people in the world who have great peace, who have no peace in their, in their uh, circumstances and their surroundings. But they have a peace that passes, surpasses understanding. They don't understand, but they trust God. And they have the peace of God. And it will guard your hearts and your minds, we're told. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14-16, the writer says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The door is open. He says we can come boldly. We come in the name of Jesus. That's our boldness. We don't come in our own name because we have no standing there in ourselves. But in Him, uh, all the riches that He has, in Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And His inheritance, we're partakers of His inheritance. We can come in boldly to get mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, he speaks a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And he tells this parable of the unjust judge, you know, and this widow who keeps coming to him over and over and saying, when, when are you going to give me justice? And he doesn't care about her. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about man. He's set for life. He must be one of those, you know, unelected judges. And so, you know, after a while, he's just like, she keeps bugging me. I'm going to do what she says and get her out of my hair. Uh, And the Lord says uh, in verse 6, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears along with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Again, the need to watch, to be ready. Vengeance. You say, well, should I want him to take vengeance on my enemies? You know, he's going to avenge me. Should I want that? Well, vengeance is his. Vengeance is not ours. We leave that in his hands. But, yeah, we do want to be avenged when the time comes because we know that that's perfect timing and perfect justice with the Lord. He will avenge them speedily. Anybody who doesn't want to have vengeance taken on them by the Lord, all they have to do is repent and turn to Him and receive forgiveness. And they're not going to be in that situation. And then Luke twenty-one thirty-six, he says, Watch therefore and pray always 
that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So the imperative of prayer. We don't know the time. Uh, David Guzik says, Some people have the idea we don't know when Jesus is coming, so it doesn't really matter. Others have the idea we don't know when Jesus is coming, so we have to find out and set a date. We talked about some of those folks. Right response is, I don't know when Jesus is coming, so I have to be alert, eager, and ready for His coming. Because we do not know when, we must watch. The English name Gregory, and we have a Gregory in our fellowship now, uh, not present today, but the English name Gregory comes from this Greek word translated watch. The ancient Greek word Gregoru. Perhaps every time we meet someone named Gregory or Greg, we should be reminded to watch. So from now on, when you see Greg, you can be reminded, oh, I need to watch. I need to be watching, waiting for the Lord. The command here is to take heed. He's saying, pay attention. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. This is the fifth time this Greek word is used in this chapter, taking heed. He wants us to take heed in particular in regard to these uh, prophetic pronouncements. Uh, we find it in 13.2, where Jesus says, Do you not see these great buildings? To his apostles, well, let's take heed to these buildings. It makes more sense to translate it, Do you not see? 13.5, Jesus says, Take heed that no one deceives you. 13.9, he says, Watch out for yourselves. That's take heed to yourselves. For they'll deliver you up to councils and so forth. And then in verse 23, Take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Take heed to the things that Jesus is saying. And then here uh, in verse 33. In verse 34, he tells us it's like uh, a man going to a far country who left his house, gave authority to his servants, to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. So, uh, Jesus has left the house. He's, he's not in the... Well, he is in the building, but he's here spiritually. He has gone. <laughs> he's left his spirit in the church. And the song that we sang earlier, I was trying to find that lyric this week because I remember it, but I couldn't find it. You know, uh, Google, Google tends to not like things, spiritual things, you know, so they push them way down in their search engines. He has left his spirit. He's left his spirit until the work is done. Left his spirit with us. So uh, he commands us to occupy until he comes. In Luke 19, uh, verse 11, it says, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. He's telling them these stories about this guy that goes away and then he comes back, you know, to the vineyard or... Uh, leaving the house, and then he's coming back. He's giving authority to servants, and he's coming back. And so he tells them here in verse 12, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivering to them ten minas, and said to them, do business until I come. I think it's a, King James says, occupy until I come. We're, be, we're to be about the Lord's business until He comes. And, you know, He goes through that parable and He comes back and settles accounts with those servants, right? What did you do with those ten minas that I gave you? And similar to the parable of the talents. 
uh, but not exactly the same. So, being about the Lord's business, that's our job. That's our work that He has assigned to us to each His work. That's a, that's a uh, universal work, being about His business, but He has different business for each one of us to be about, so each has His own work. Jesus has left you, He's left to you His house. The church belongs to Jesus, but He entrusts it to each one of us. He's left to you His authority. We're to live and serve in the authority of Jesus, and responsibility is always coupled with authority, and He has left us His work. Each servant has His work to do. We aren't responsible for someone else's work, but we are certainly responsible for our work. Each one has his own work. What's the work that God has called you to? God has called every believer to some work and has provided what each needs to fulfill that work. As we read in Luke, we use what the Lord's given us to serve His purpose. We occupy until He comes. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do so with the ability that God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This manifold grace of God, it means many-faceted, variegated, many-colored, like the many-colored coat of Joseph. Uh, the manifold grace of God, it, you know, he gives things according to his grace he chooses. The task that he gives, he chooses the tools that he supplies. And he says that he gave this authority to his servants. A servant is a steward before God. We are to be faithful stewards, faithful in his house. Colossians chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. That's the basic requirement in a steward. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, uh, the writer's been comparing you know, Jesus' superior angels. Here he comes to the situation of uh, speaking about Moses. You know, Moses was the greatest in the... Hebrew, you know, Moses is Abraham, but Moses is way up there. In verse 1 it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. So Jesus is faithful as a steward, even as Moses was. Back in Numbers chapter 12, we find... Um, this is where this is quoted from in verse 6. 
It says, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? That's a good point, Lord. I think I'll refrain from speaking against him now. The faithful steward versus the unjust steward is talked about in a parable in Luke 16. And we know that uh, unjust steward, um, he was told you'll no longer have employment here. He's going to be put out of his job. So he sits down and negotiates with all the his master's debtors and so forth. He was an unjust steward. Or to be just stewards, faithful stewards. And then he speaks to this doorkeeper. He commands the doorkeeper to watch. Some have a special task to watch and to warn, but all are to be watching and praying. The doorkeeper would be the first to see the master returning if the doorkeeper is not asleep. He must raise awareness and wake up those who are sleeping or complacent. We're told the Lord is at hand. There's an attitude we can have in watching. You can watch in anxiety. You can watch in fear. But the child of God is to be watching, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. That is a joyful anticipation. And so he says, watch therefore. You don't know when the master of the house is coming. We know a couple of things. We have a certainty of his coming. We read this in Mark 13:26. They'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Revelation 1:7 that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So everyone is going to see him. But certain that he's coming. First Thessalonians 4, which we've read numerous times recently, is coming for his church. We can know that that's the case. The bride of Jesus. We have that certainty. We have the uncertainty of the timing. In verse 28 here, in 13, Mark 13, Learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves. You know that summer is near. So the time is getting near, we're told, but we don't have an exact time frame. And then our passage here, uh, we know that he's coming. What we don't know is the exact time in which he's coming. We don't know the specific time of his coming for the church, and we will not know that. He has kept this knowledge for himself. Thus, we are commanded to watch, pray, and expect him at any time. The emphasis is he may come at any of the four watches of the night or day. We don't know when he's coming for us. Interestingly, you know, he says, you don't know when the master of the house is coming, evening, midnight, crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Actually, he's coming at all those times. It depends on where you are. <laughs> but you don't know where he's coming in your time. You don't know which of these is coming in your time. We know that he's coming because he promised. We don't know the day or the hour because he has not told us. And so he says then in verse 36, lest... He's coming suddenly, he finds you sleeping. He, he has told us time and again that his coming will be 
suddenly or quick, quickly. So there's an exhortation against sleeping, spiritual slumber, complacency about Jesus, about following Him, about being alert and expectant of His return. There's an imminence to the rapture of the church is coming for the church because we don't know when it's going to be and it could be at any time uh, that's that's being imminent. doesn't have to happen now but it could happen at any point and that separates that time from the second coming because things must happen before the second coming takes place. Nothing must happen before His coming for the church. So spiritually sleeping is the opposite of watching Second Peter chapter three, verses three and four. He says, Knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Oh, people have been talking about his coming forever. He doesn't show up. So you find these scoffers, that's a, an attitude of complacency, spiritual sleep. In Second Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. That's watching and being ready. Be diligent to found by him in peace. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, the patience of our Lord, the fact that he didn't come yesterday. He hasn't come yet today. His long-suffering is salvation. As also our beloved brother, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. And then Second Peter again, 3, 17 and 18, he says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So we don't want to be uh, deterred from that steadfastness. He's told us His coming will be sudden. Revelation 22.20 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. It doesn't mean I'm coming soon. It means once I come, it's going to be fast. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be quick. And if you're not ready, then, you know, it's too late to get ready when he comes. And the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Come, Lord Jesus. So quickly is not soon, but rapidly. When he comes, it will be sudden, without delay, without time to prepare and so John exhorts us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, Now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And in chapter 3, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He's revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. That anticipation of the coming of the Lord and being ready. 
Bless you. So he ends this uh, discourse. You know, this is the last thing Jesus says before his last night on the earth as a, in a human body that hadn't been crucified. Uh, he says here in verse 37, What I say to you, I say to all, watch. So there's a present imperative here. Continually be watching. Never stop watching. And we might say, but I have other things to do. The idea is to be in a state of readiness. Prepared to meet him when he comes because you are about his business. Occupying until he comes. So we must remind ourselves and be reminded that it is possible that he may come at any moment. I've told you before about the bumper sticker on my Ford, I think, 64 Ford. This was back you know, when there were Christian bookstores that were owned by Christians and had stuff. <laughs> and, uh, this bumper sticker was an, an angel with a trumpet and it, and it just said, maybe today. You know. And of course, it's going to be the trump of God. Bumper stickers aren't perfect. Don't trust in bumper stickers. It's possible he may come at any moment. And so the event of the second coming of Jesus consists of three parts. The rapture, the tribulation, and the physical return of Jesus to the earth. All that is can be part of, viewed as part of the second coming, beginning with the rapture, following through to his physical return. The tribulation sandwiched in the middle. Just as his first coming was made up of multiple parts. He was conceived miraculously, virgin conception, then he was born, he lived his life, he died, he was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven. All that's first coming. So our desire is to be taken in the first phase of his coming, the rapture, and to return with him in the third phase having spent the intermediate phase, the great tribulation, in heaven, in his presence, forever to be with him. Henry Morris says, The frequent injunction of Christ unto all to watch for his return seems to make it clear that it could come at any time. We do not need to watch first for certain other, other events to take place, but only to watch continuously for him. This is a great incentive to godly living and evangelism. You know, if you believe the rapture is coming at the second coming, then you're looking for a lot of things other than Jesus because he can't come till those things are completed. And so you're looking for the signing of the covenant. You're looking for the Antichrist. You're looking for the events in the book of Revelation. can't look forward to those eagerly, <laughs> but we can look forward to the coming of Jesus for us with eagerness. And, you know, we're exhorted to do that. And this, this imminency, imminent means to hang over, like a, a sword hanging over your head or, or an axe, except this one's a you know positive thing. But it's ready to take place at any time now. It's imminent. So the imperative message here is to be ready. Watch for his coming, which can be at any time. And the early believers lived in this uh, expectation. We find some examples, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
there are many passages. These are just some examples. First Corinthians 16:22, Paul says, "If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed or anathema." O Lord, come, which is the Greek word Maranatha. O Lord, come. So Paul's saying, you know, come now, Lord. Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.5, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now we're told several times the Lord is at hand. It means he's he's right ready to come. First Thessalonians chapter one verses nine and ten. As they were sharing the gospel, Paul says, They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This was uh, one of the earliest churches that Paul established. This is one of the first letters he wrote. And he's telling them uh, they were waiting for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. He was there for only a short time and this is what he, he taught them. First Thessalonians 4, 13-18 again. Uh, the rapture, which he says, comfort one another with these words. 1 Timothy 6, 13-15, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. Titus 2, 12 and 13, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's watching and being ready. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope. Hebrews 9.28 Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for Him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Who are those who eagerly wait for Him? They're believers. (laughs) And then 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. That kind of sums up what Jesus is saying here. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. That's the, the main thing. Little children, love one another. That's his command, that we have love each for one another. So that's chapter 13. That's the end of this Olivet Discourse. Mark's um, version, the things that he remembered, or that Peter remembered really, and gave and, and were written down.